It's a good morning to be uh, here with you as we share in the, the grace of our God together. Um, our, our message today is coming from Romans chapter 3. If you're going to read along, we're going to be in verses 1 to 22 of that chapter. And it's an exciting portion of God's word that we are going to be looking at today. It's, it's an exciting portion of God's word specifically for the reason that it is also probably one of the most important passages in the New Testament. Uh, in the development of the themes of the book of Romans, we, we find ourselves in the place where we now get to consider the, the solution to the problem. Romans thus far has been, for the most part for us, uh, a weighty burden. It's been a, a description of our problems. It's been a description of the bad news, uh, which has been described and expanded on for several long weeks. We have had to sit here and stare into the face our great dilemma, the problem of sin. There's an old saying, and it's this, the night is darkest before the dawn. Today, we make it to the dawn, the arrival of hope. But before we get there, we need to wade through one last piece of darkness, and it is the darkest darkness. And so let's take a moment to prepare ourselves and to remember that like a, a surgeon has to cut before they can heal, like, like a gardener will prune in order to bring increased fruitfulness today again, God is going to fight for our joy and our salvation by first wounding us and then healing us. Um, thus far in the book of Romans, two, two big claims have been made. The first is this, that the world is sinful. And the second claim was that even Israel, God's chosen people, are sinful. And along the way, we have seen the deflections, um, that, that our deflections to this problem are ultimately not going to help us in any way deal with the problem. We aren't going to be able to blame shift or uh, evade our way out of here. The whole world is in rebellion against God, and because of this, the judgment of God is coming. Today, we bring these threads together and come to the most important, important of conclusions that if, if there is to be a salvation, and there is, that it will not be brought about by our success, by our effort, or by our goodness. It will be brought about by another means, and that means it's faith in Jesus. The message today begins with the bleak absence of hope, but it ends with the unshakable provision of true hope, the kind of hope that could not exist were salvation to come from us. The kind of concrete surety that you want and need as the foundation of a life in a world like this one, unshakable and constant and true. One bit of housekeeping before we get into it. Um, let me first mention what is happening at the start of our chapter, verses 1 through uh, 8 of Romans chapter 3, which we are going to be skimming through fairly quickly to get to the meat. Um, Paul anticipates some of the obvious objections that he is going to get to the second claim that he's made in the book of Romans, which is the claim that Israel has fallen into sin. Um, I'll mention them at lightning speed, but we aren't going to focus on them. I just couldn't in good conscience say nothing. Objection number one, if Israel is sinful, if both Jews and Gentiles stand condemned before God by their sin, what is the point of their being Jews? Do you know what I mean? Like, what is the point of Israel existing as a thing? Has it accomplished nothing? And the quick answer is 
the history of Israel matters a lot. It just isn't the solution to the problem of sin. Objection number two. If Israel has failed to follow God, does that mean that God himself has failed or that he doesn't keep his promises? Can you feel that objection? Actually, this one is going to be dealt with at length, starting in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. But the quick answer is no, it doesn't mean that. God is correct to judge us all. He has not failed. And objection number three, he anticipates a, a theological objection to the problems that he has presented. Isn't God ultimately responsible for my sin, one might ask? Doesn't he get more glory for forgiving me more? To which Paul says, basically, stop being stupid, you're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> and then we move on. <laughs> we pick up the main thread of Romans again in verse 9 of chapter 3. Let's do some simple deductive reasoning. If the Gentiles are sinners, and the Jews are sinners. What must we conclude? Paul paraphrases Psalm 14 in order to inform us. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There it is. That's, that's the problem that we've been exploring detail by detail, stated in full. Do you feel the significance of this claim? The human race, all, are guilty of this. And apart from our being rescued, what a terrible dilemma it is. Brothers and sisters, let's put down this talk of Jews and Gentiles. This is personal. This is describing me. Without God's help, this is who I am before him. If no one is righteous, I am not righteous. Do you feel it? If nobody understands, I don't understand. If all have turned aside, then I have turned aside and together with everybody else have become worthless. If no one does good, then I don't do good, not on my own. I, I am full of curses and bitterness. My feet are swift to shed blood. I leave ruin and misery in my wake. Let me reflect back on my life. What do I see? How many have I wounded and wronged? Not only on purpose, though sometimes it is 
but sometimes simply because it is just in my nature to do so and my will wasn't even required. People made in his image, I have treated with the contempt that my sinful nature has for God himself. Brothers and sisters, I have slandered. I have refused to reconcile. I have delighted in things that he calls an abomination. I have ignored him. I have tried to fit him around my life and called that faith rather than fitting my life around him in his rightful place at the center. I am not righteous. I am sinful. And I'm very slow to believe this. C.H. Spurgeon once said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> it's encouraging, isn't it? Can you feel it? Can you feel your ego being provoked and rebelling against this already? Those hidden stores of self-righteousness rise up within us at this accusation and they object. Hang on, we bluster. You don't understand. I'm not as bad as all that. I do nice things all the time, don't we think? Just yesterday, I fed my neighbor's cat while they were on the holidays. How dare you accuse me of this kind of depravity? But the Bible leaves us with no other possible view. We must reject the modern view that people are basically good and that the evil that we do comes from some periphery of who we are. People are basically sinful, even if we are kind sometimes. Actually, there's a helpful way to describe what the Bible means when it talks about this. There's two concepts in theology that sound similar but are quite but are quite different if we haven't mentioned them clearly enough as well. They both deal with the nature of human sinfulness. One idea is called utter depravity, and the other idea is called total depravity. How lovely. One of them is true and one of them is not. Utter depravity would describe sinfulness, human sinfulness, as meaning that we are always as sinful as we could possibly be. We are always at our very worst. It is not true. And virtually nobody believes it. If, if utter depravity were true, every one of us would leave Hitler in our wake. Do you understand? It's a common misunderstanding of what is meant when we claim that the human race is totally depraved. Total depravity is the belief that while we are not always as bad as we could be, we are never as good as we should be. Feel that difference? It's the idea that every part of us, there is no single part of my being which is free from the taint of sin. I am never completely free of sin, not at any point in my life. People can be kind. People can be nice. People can be moral, upstanding citizens, but even our kindness is stained with the presence of sinful motives. Some people are worse than others. 
but none of us is righteous. Do you feel it? It's better. It's healthier. We are told in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah that our greatest deeds are like filthy rags before God. The best thing that I have to offer God, my greatest deed, my biggest kindness, my most selfless action compared to the righteousness of God is the same thing as a used menstrual cloth. We are not righteous. Yes. Even in feeding your neighbor's cat, the stain of sin was present. You are irritated to be asked. You are seeking to get their approval to validate yourself. And if your neighbor asks too many times, you will find the edges of your generosity. And if they don't adequately thank us on their return, and I mean local chocolates, <laughs> then watch out. Ultimately, goodness is an act of faith. Goodness, uh, go unless goodness is an act of faith, it is an act of self-righteousness. It is all too unsurprising when our sinfulness displays itself. All of this is to say that feeding your neighbor's cat will not reconcile you to God. It is not an escape to the charge that nobody is righteous. The stain is too complete. We need a bigger solution. The problem of my sin is not going to be done away with by random acts of kindness or even a lifetime of careful, lawful obedience. Along comes God's own law to clarify this for us. How hopeless is the human condition without a rescuer? Which of us has ever been in the thousands of years since the law was given righteous before it by our own actions? The problem is bigger and the solution needs to be bigger. We read it in verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's it. That is the darkest darkness. It's the heaviest thing that we have read thus far, and brothers and sisters, that is the heaviest thing we will ever read. This is our dilemma and our problem. Pitch black is the name that they give to the absolute absence of light. The darkest darkness possible. And here it is. This is what pitch black looks like. The whole world will be held accountable to God and by works of the law, not a one of us is justified. The just condemnation of all people everywhere forever is what you are looking at. God's law is clear. It describes and defines righteousness, 
God's own holiness and perfection, his created order given to us for our benefit and his glory and of all the people who have ever lived anywhere ever, be they Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female or tall or short or rich or poor or married or single, that glorious moral stable law has only ever had one effect. It condemns us. It reveals our sinfulness, it shows that not one of us is righteous. I am not righteous, and you are not righteous on your own. Never once, never once has this law revealed a heart filled to perfection with worship outside of the heart of Jesus Christ himself. Of all the countless billions who have ever lived, all fall short of the glory of God. The law has only ever revealed sin. It has saved no one. There is no appeal to fairness to be made with God if you want to experience rescue. Fairness demands your destruction. Please never, ever, ever ask God to give you what you deserve. The question is not, why does God punish? The question is not, is it fair for God to judge those who've never heard? The question is not, why doesn't God save everyone? The question is, why does God save anyone? Why does he allow any of us to even continue? Why does this world still exist? How is this burning dumpster fire of a planet still here? This world exists in a constant state of rebellion against the God who made us. There is not anywhere in the four corners of the planet that you could travel to escape this problem. Where there are us, there is sin. What an insult to the Lord Most High, our Creator and our Sustainer. We worry so that He does not give us His, our rights, whilst living in a world that has never, ever given Him His. Why does he allow us to go on? Why does he tolerate us? Why has he not destroyed us all already? If he had done so, there would be no finger or mouth in all of creation that could point at him and accuse, you have done wrong. Our existence is a cosmic injustice. Black is black. darkest darkness. Our condemnation is just. My condemnation is just. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the moment my mother conceived me.
and then the first rays of light appear. The dawn of hope, the glimmer of the possibility of grace, impossible light in a world of darkness. And at first it's one word, but, but what? <laughs> How can there be a but? And yet there is, here it is. What, what could it possibly be? What exception could there be to this, to this dilemma? And there's another word, but now, and, and, and more and more that the sun of grace dawns over the, the furthest horizon and it begins to shine radiantly and intensely into our eyes. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But there is no distinction. How precious. How precious are these words. I'm not going to be reconciled to God through my obedience. And I'm not going to be reconciled to God through the law. But I can be reconciled to God. It is possible. I'm so glad to to hear this. I'm, I'm so glad to hear it's not by them. I couldn't do them anyway. Throw it in the bin and be rid of it. If you are seeking to be reconciled to God by your goodness, abandon all attempts at deserving his kindness. It's not your friend. I am not righteous. Not a one of us is. The law declares us unrighteous, but God's own righteousness has been manifested. It has been made available and revealed and seen to be active. Can I have that instead? Is it, is it possible that I could have God's righteousness for my own? Can he be for me what I am not? And the answer is yes. He can be all that and more for you. How do I get it? Apart from the law. Yes, and how do I get this righteousness of God? through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous. In his finished work at the cross and beyond. And who can get it? Does it mean me? For all who believe. For all who believe. Yes, you can have this. Does that mean me? Even me, dirty, stained, hopeless, corrupt me. All who believe. Yes, you. You can have this. The righteousness of God manifested apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. But I don't deserve it. It's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How could it possibly be true? It's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And the dawn grows brighter and brighter. It is the rebirth of hope. It is a new day. It is a new life. It, if what we just experienced, brothers and sisters, was the darkest darkness, this is the glorious light of the face of God. There is one right response to this. This good news. 
That is to place your faith in Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God. There, are, there's only one right response to this. If you came here dirty, leave clean by the grace of God. There is two kinds of person here. Only two. There are those of us who have never received this kind of grace. If this is you, you are still in your sin. You need not be. Turn in faith to Jesus to be saved and experience God's grace today. Go to God even now and admit your need. In in doing so, abandon your self-righteous attempts to gain his favor and ask him instead to give you Christ's victory over your sins, one at the cross. Ask that Jesus to be your saviour and Lord and to make you a worshipper when you are not a worshipper. And he will. Come to the end of yourself and find the beginning of grace. A bunch of other stuff is going to take place in you spiritually. That's what Mike was talking about. This Pentecost stuff that I said I wasn't going to mention. There's whole chapters of Romans on it. That's why we're skimming over it. You'll be made new. You'll be filled with the Spirit of God. You will become a new creation with a new present and a new eternity. You will become righteous, not through your obedience, but through being joined with Christ. Most important of all, you will be reconciled to the God who made you, adopted into his family as his child, with him as your father, destined to spend forever with him. If that is you, and you want this thing, you can ask God for it even now. It's not mine to give, it's his. Even now, ask him, Jesus, would you save me? But if it is you, I'd love to hear from you because we as a church would love to offer you any kind of help we can give. It begins quite simply by talking to God and telling him, yes, I surrender. Give me Jesus. Make me yours. There's one other kind of person in this room. That's those of us who have already received this grace. And for us, Romans has been a very confusing experience this far. Because we've sat for weeks hearing that no one is righteous and that no one seeks God, and you've been there sitting, you've been sitting there thinking, but I do. (laughs) I do seek God. I do love him. I do worship him. It's it's I used to be like that, but I, but I have been reconciled, and now I, I love him from the bottom of my being up. I'm still not perfect, but I'm, but I'm his. This, this isn't true of me, and you, you weren't wrong. You are right, of course. We have been reliving by the process of this book's argument the way in which we were first reconciled to him. But it's a good thing to do. Because we need to do this often. 
we, we don't need to come back here to be saved again and filled with the Spirit again. That's not our need as Christians. But because we get distracted, because we grow complacent, or because we begin to doubt, or because we sinfully take some part of our life which belongs to God by His grace and just try to rest it back into our own control apart from Him. After we gain Jesus as our Saviour, this principle of grace becomes the bedrock of our whole lives. We never move on from this and we never outgrade, uh, outgrow our need for it. We remain here forever. And so even for us, this has been a blessing. I had a shocker of a week this week. It was really hard. And in my distress, I called a pastor friend of mine to talk about it. Specifically, what I asked him was this. Will you preach the gospel to me and tell me who I am in Jesus? Because the lies of the devil are loud this week. He was very kind. And he reminded me of a cross by which I was reconciled to God. That's why we come back here. We come again and again every day if we can and drink from the well of grace. Brothers and sisters, have you drifted? Have you forgotten? Have you foolishly tried to take back what is his and hold it away from him and by yourself? Are you still trying to solve your problems by worrying about them? Are you unable to trust your brothers and your sisters because of past hurts which remain unforgiven? Are you isolated and alone because you are hiding? Because you are afraid that you will be seen? He hasn't forgotten you. His grace is still for you, and so come and experience it again and afresh. Come and experience what complete and total acceptance is from the one voice that matters. Acceptance won for you with the precious blood of His own Son. Life everlasting. Come and experience it again and afresh. Like the Father ran to embrace the prodigal Son, the God of Heaven is already rushing towards you, full of kindness and mercy. to reconcile, to clothe you in the finest robe, the righteousness of Christ. Come home and experience again what it is to have a righteousness which is not your own and therefore is righteousness (laughs) and is certain Let's pray. Father, like like Noah and his family being preserved in a flood, like Lot being spared the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
rescue us from this falling world, collapsing in on itself in sinful hatred and corruption. Rescue me, because that corruption is inside me, not just outside. Show me your grace. Father, we are so glad to hear that it is not by works of the law that we can come before you. That we can have your righteousness apart from the law. That God, you justify the ungodly. That you came to save sinners. that it is the meek who inherit the earth. Lord, we come before you in spiritual poverty. We have nothing to bring that would demand you show us kindness or mercy. And you have it. Lord, where my sin, anything less than what it was, perhaps a cross would not have been necessary. And my sin, as great as it is, is still less than the value of that cross. We pray and we say, Jesus, what you have done for us is what we could not do. By faith we cry, it is enough. Surely you alone are worthy. Surely in your blood alone do I find mercy. And I thank you for that mercy. I want it. It is the greatest of treasures that could ever possibly exist. Father, God who made me, I am so sorry for my sin. And I look to your son and I accept. And I say, make me yours. And make me righteous. And bring me home. And we pray this in the only name we can. In the name of Jesus.